0: Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers podcast. A podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Welcome back everybody for another set of Ask Me Anything questions. This is the third Ask Me Anything episode and we got some interesting questions lined up. But before we go to the questions, here's a few words from our sponsors. Are you a mobile game developer who's looking to try something new on the ad creative side? My top pick would be influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific content from your games and Opera Event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game Go to getigc.com to see some examples. That's getigc.com. At Pollen VC, we're committed to helping game developers improve their financial literacy. That's why we've launched CFO Resources, a new section of our website that hosts a free suite of calculators and financial planning tools to help you plan your business and grow faster. Our financial forecaster tool helps you project cash flows and visualize your ROAS and LTV based on metrics you provide. And if you're a hyper-casual developer, you need to check our hyper-casual velocity calculator. Head over to pollen.vc and click CFO resources to get started. All right, let's get going. Uh, Here's the first question of this episode. So Steve asks, we are planning on a day one retention test and I have a quick question for you we are launching with three levels of content and because these are early levels we allow players to work their way through them relatively quickly gradually extending the length of time it takes to complete each level in general players will be able to complete all three levels in approximately 90 minutes to two hours of continuous play the question is in our retention metrics how do we account for players who like the experience enough to play through all the content on their first day do we include them in our day one retention counting or not because they won't have any content left for day one I appreciate your insights on this one. Thanks. Well, Steve, this dilemma of people consuming all the content on the first day comes up actually quite a lot. I remember this coming up in my career in gaming at next games. We were also contemplating on like soft launching a game where the content is consumed too quickly and then people don't have anything left to play. So, it's good that you asked this question so we can tackle this one right now and once and for all. So, first off, I want to cover the what is enough content for day one retention testing question, which I believe should be in the realm of somewhat like 60 minutes at minimum. So, how do you come up with this number? So, like, through spending many years in game development, looking at data, seeing what happens. So I believe that still to this day, half of your players won't play your game for more than half an hour on day zero. There's actually a report uh, on Google Play's Medium site where they talk about play times. I suggest you check that out. There are other reports like this as well. I'm certain there's a game analytics report on this as well. I couldn't find a link to it, but there are other people talking about uh, average play times. So let's focus on what happens on day zero. Many analytics tools like dive.games will give you this automatically out of the box. But I'm going to walk you through the process of crunching the numbers so that you'll have a practical understanding of why this matters so day zero when you start looking at the players on a cohort level where you group players based on common characteristics in these groups aka cohorts things get a lot more interesting so i I think at this day zero stage kind of like the first two things the two lenses that you want to view things through are the session count of the players on day zero, meaning how many times they close the game and come back session count for day zero. And then the second lens would be playtime on day zero, meaning that people are playing the game counting in seconds how much accumulated seconds do they play of playtime on day zero. So when viewing your players through these lenses, you want to chop them down into sort of like different cohorts again. So I I like to do it with this kind of like 10 different cohorts of how players play on sessions, additional session goals on day zero and also the playtime on day zero. So you put this data in a bar chart, like a graph where the bar height represents the numbers of players in that cohort. Now you want to group your players to these 10 different bars based on their characteristics. So let's go for session count. So let's say that the player only comes into the game once and never comes back on day zero. That would mean session count would be one for those players. So that's the first bar on this graph. And you want to visualize how many players had one session during that day zero. And then you have the other bars there representing two sessions on day zero, three sessions on day zero. And since we want to keep it in 10 bars, I'd actually start grouping the people who had the most sessions. So maybe you'd want to do groupings of uh, six to 10, uh, 10, 11 to 20 and 20 and more so then you order these bars based on like i I just pointed out that the lowest amount of sessions would be on the left hand side and the the one with the most sessions the group of players would be on the right hand side so as you're looking at this chart you're most likely going to see that there's a lot of people having one session that's more represented than any of the other bars. That's very common uh, in gaming that you have people who try the game once and never come back. That's totally fine. But of course, we want to start moving people from that one session bar to the rest of the bars. And then we start looking at the playtime. You'd have the first bar at zero to one minutes of playtime. And then the second bar would be at one minute to two minutes. And you go from there and building that that group of 10 different uh, cohorts on playtime. Uh, and here you want to start moving players from the realm of playing like one minute, two minutes to actually put a lot more people who play around 10 minutes to, to half an hour, but you want don't want necessarily them going above one hour because like too little playtime means that the players are bored. They're confused. They're getting stuck. They're closing the game, but they never find their way back. They don't have an incentive to to return. So like playtime is left at a minimum and you'll sort of like see corresponding like this to, to the session count of one one session on day day zero so improvement there will push things to the better and why i'm talking about like it's not great to have a lot of people playing more than one hour on day zero so i i i've seen this happen that you will get players that burn out from having a lot of content too early in the game they're they're exhausted they're getting through too much content they don't know what's a good time to leave and finally, when they figure that out, they necessarily don't want to come back. If you have a lot of people who are enjoying the game sort of like as a bell curve in this chart, you can see that there's there's pull in the game and people are liking it, which is a good thing. And then you want to start thinking about like how do you get players to come back more and playing Sort of like these 10 to 20 minute sessions, which is a more healthy session, even 5 to 15 is a, is a good range differing on what kind of game you're making. So one thing that increases both metrics, both playtime and session count is that you have better sessioning mechanics like energy gating where you need to replenish your energy by going away for a little while and coming back to play more some kind of difficulty bar where you need certain things. Uh, You need to practice the game a bit more before you progress to the further levels. So you're gradually progressing, but not like true leaps and bounds immediately in the first two hours on day zero. This makes the player notice that it's okay that you won't get through everything immediately and that hey when this timer actually runs out I guess I could come back in two hours to play again and push notifications work really well in all these situations where you where you're pulling the players back so Steve to to sort of summarize to your question the answer I would include all players in day one measurement all of them Not really caring about like how much content they consumed because you want to understand what is going on on all of the levels. You want to know what is happening on day zero regarding the session count and the playtime because then you can focus on improving these things in an update and continuing to test in your soft launch like to do changes to see if those things change the game for the better. And when you include all of your players, like I would do, I would always keep them there. I wouldn't leave anybody out of the measurement. You just want to find out the reasons why people are not going to day one. Let's continue with the questions. So we have Paolo who asks, in your opinion and experience, is there any difference in securing funding for a game studio based in a country that is not among the leaders in game development. For example a country in Latin America. And do you believe being a remote first studio can be a problem or a virtue or neither in securing funding. Has that changed with the pandemic and the whole home office surge? Well, thanks, Paolo, for submitting this set of questions. This is really good stuff. So first, let me tackle your first question. I believe that startup funding is becoming more and more possible wherever you are and your co-founders are residing. Uh, It doesn't really matter are you in a top sort of like characterized game development country or not some 15 years ago there was a saying in finland that hey finland is too far away and the investors are treating startups in finland like coming from a second grade country like this was just the case like it was really hard for uh, anybody from the states to think about investing into finland like how would they come to board meetings and stuff like that so i think things have changed a lot after the success of rovio with angry birds and uh, supercell with all their games so uh when we were fundraising in 2013 for next games it it definitely was quite quite sort of like easy I, i think there was was still this atmosphere that we're really far away. Like if we would be racing from Silicon Valley VCs. But of course, nowadays sort of the gaming, gaming investors are looking at companies all over the world and they're not afraid about geography that much. But I I think the change has been taking place um, and it's not that much related to having, you know, successful gaming companies in your country. Of course, this is still happening. Like with Turkey now having the success of peak games and the Rolik acquisition. Uh, but the changes I'm talking about here is like, if you, if you have a, a team that is excellent and everybody can see that they know what they're doing, they're doing something impressive, you will get funding wherever you are located. Uh, Investors are more comfortable nowadays taking Zoom meetings and writing checks without seeing the founders physically. I've personally be, been in this situation now several times that I've been involved in an investment where I have not yet even met the founders, like even working with them for, for several months now. Uh, just waiting for the first game conferences and events to come up so that we can meet up face-to-face. But it's it's not a necessary thing to have that physical meeting to actually become viable for investments. So I I think this was still unheard of two years ago, but the pandemic made things a lot easier for, for startups. So if you have an attractive team and a company, but you are operating in a country where the banking system maybe isn't stable or the government isn't stable, then what? Well, I've seen several companies in Turkey actually set up their entity, the actual legal company in the UK, although they still continue working and living in Turkey. The legal stuff just stays in the UK because it's more... Sort of like something that the investors know. It's easier for everybody. It's more stable. Things are more certain. So I think similar things could be done in Latin America. That you could set up your company, maybe even the, in the U.S. or in like in the U.K. But if if you're still at this pre-revenue or pre-funding stage and you're barely surviving, how do you how do you then think about setting up? in a different location and starting to to do all that process, then you can always put it in your pitch deck that you would incorporate the company in the US or the UK if an investment happens. I think that's totally okay. And investors can agree to these kind of setups. I've seen Estonia becoming a really good option uh, for setting up venture-backed startups recently in Europe. So for your, for your second question, how can a remote first studio get funding? So again, it all depends on the team and what they're doing. That's what really matters the most. If they are a capable team on what they're planning to do, that, that's, I think, what's more being evaluated. Like if you have a plan, how viable is that plan? And how good are you? to actually go and execute that so at the end of the day the studio has to manage this remote first setup and if they seem like people who can make it work or are already making it to work I I don't see it as a problem for any investor I'd say that um, there won't be many investors opposing to this especially after what we've gone through during the pandemic Here's another question from Danny who asks, what happens if your startup manages to make say one to two million in revenue enough to be profitable for a small team, but doesn't manage to burst out to become a hundred million revenue company like VCs want? How can this be resolved with the VCs and the founders? I think this is an excellent question Danny thanks for sending it over as we are talking about investor expectations here I'm going to lay out a few scenarios to help out in answering this question in fundraising you have these kind of stages that are called pre seed seed and series a so these are the most common stages for game studios to raise funding. So at the, the pre-seed stage, you'd be raising from anywhere between a hundred thousand to a million, depending on the team strength and the attractiveness. So have they worked in, in gaming? How much experience do they have, etc.? Uh in, in the seed stage you'd raise anywhere from one million to four million again depending on the team and the progress they've made so you're looking already about like things like the numbers for a build but sometimes you don't even need so much progress here if the team is sort of like this uh AAA team the world class uh, and the investors are really excited that they are doing a startup. You know, you see these teams leave riot who are immediately raising 10 million because they've built awesome games. They worked as a team on some of the most successful video games in the world. And when they do their own company, there are immediately investors fighting to get involved with these startups. So then you go to series A and there the investors are investing anywhere between five to 20 million usually or even higher. And the big difference at Series A level is that the team should already have a lot of data from their game like revenue flowing in and an understanding and a plan on how this company will become a hundred million dollar revenue company. So to answer your question at pre-seed, which is the first stage where you're going to be raising any money from VCs especially, there is less need to map out how you will actually get to 100 million from where you are already, but rather how you'll find a game that starts working that you can have this kind of vision for that game, making that one to two million in revenue. I think that's that's okay at the pre-seed stage for any investor to limit your planning to that stage because that is already really hard to achieve. So as most investors will know, that like if you achieve that, that's already great because then you can move on to the next stage of funding and there you... There you're selling another story, a bigger story again, and then again and again. Uh, this is how it goes. Fund, fundraising is a, a kind of like a graduation from one level to the next level. And the investors who are dealing at the lower levels have, have sort of like have expectations of big returns one day. They want to see bigger exits, but it is not something you need to explain at the early stage. So I'll give a few examples here. You've got a mobile game studio that is building a, let's say, a merge game, which is very popular nowadays. And you have a team which is quite experienced. Maybe they've worked together in a game studio, in a mobile game studio for several years, but this is their first startup that they're doing. They are raising half a million in pre-seed so here the investor isn't pushing them to talk about a hundred million revenue plan it's more about exploring their idea and seeing if it would work and if the idea won't eventually work what would they then do what is their pivot plan like even the pivot might not even come up because that's more about like understanding what is the skill set of the team, can they try something something else, can they learn from their first failure and move on from there, are they those kind of people who can actually learn. So those kind of discussions will be happening, not so much focusing on the discussion on the big dream. So of course, at this pre-seed stage, an investor would also like that, you know, there's a path to the next funding round to happen. So that is kind of like the the focus for the next 12 to 24 months is to actually make enough progress to get to the next level in your sort of like fundraising track. Uh, Let's take another example still to, to sort of like point out how it can be different. So this is Dream Games who are based in Istanbul, Turkey. So the founders had previously worked at peak games on the top grossing games there, Toy Blast and Toon Blast. And they set up uh, their own startup, Dream Games, which would take over the match 3 category. Now we've seen the, the latest game that they launched, the, the Royal Match, which is doing really well. So they raised a seed round 2 years ago of 7 million dollars and then about a year later they raised a series A round of 50 million. So this is a totally different case. These people were actually pitching the 100 million revenue story immediately because they knew they had a credible plan they've been building top-grossing games for the last 10 years at peak games. They did it, and now they are independent. They're going to be doing it again. They're going to take over the market. So this kind of credible and solid plan, th- those don't get presented that often to investors, really. So I think this this was sort of like the the dream games was the dream case for the VC investor in mobile gaming so to to summarize your question i think you want to focus on the stage that you are at and what are you going to be pursuing in the next 12 to 24 months with your company and now for a question from hans hans asks what would be your advice to find potential co-founders to create a games company without infringing non-solicitation clauses from employee contracts. I have tried several times to create a games company but so far I didn't find the right partners. Over the years I have met amazingly talented people in various companies but they're not all willing to make the leap to entrepreneurship And the ones that I could I can't really partner with because of these non solicitation clauses in the employment contracts. I understand it is normal to protect company interests. That's why I wanted to ask if you have good tips to find talented people to create a game startup. It's tough because I can't really talk openly about it on social media or on LinkedIn for now since I'm still working for this big company. But I want to find ways to get to doing a startup with people that I know well. Thanks. Thanks, Hans, for asking this question. Like, first off, let's tackle your non-solicitation clauses. Like The clause means that if you terminate your work relationship with your employer, you will not be allowed to solicit or poach your ex-employer's people to leave and join you at your new employer, be it a startup of your own or an established company, no matter what your role in the future will be so the legitimacy of having such clauses in work contracts varies a lot by country like a few years ago there was an interesting legal battle between two game studios where the ex-employee had solicited people to leave uh, to a new studio so the courts ruled in the favor of the ex-employer uh, so this was in Sweden, and uh, where the the Swedish courts first uh, made a case that yes, you cannot solicit, but then the Swedish labor courts, which is another sort of like uh, legal entity in the country, decided to overrule this local court's decision. So according to that uh, Swedish labor court decision, these non-solicitation clauses should be assessed based on the same statutory provisions as non-compete clauses. So an overall assessment as to the reasonableness of of a non-solicitation clause must be first made. Uh, you, You need to take into consideration, for instance, to what extent the employer has the legitimate interest in this restriction to be in place to what extent the clause restricts the employee from carrying out their professional activities after after they've left the company so or are there any kind of like compensations for these kind of restrictions in place what not so the The real problem here is that this varies a lot by country. So, I would suggest you check your local authorities, maybe even talk to your local sort of like union if you're a part of one, or if there are entities in your country that support uh, sort of like labor uh, freely moving around, like if there is help for that, because you want to understand if these non-solicitation clauses are actually valid or can you air, in air quotes break them <laughs> so in the case that you you are in um, you have less options when it comes to soliciting your col- colleagues to ta- join your new venture so maybe you want to first explore possibilities of having a permission to actually work on side projects with their colleagues. So I, I'm strongly of that camp of allowing people to move freely around, not restricting anything uh, in this industry, especially if people aren't happy in your studio and they want to leave. So maybe they want to leave together. Uh, it's up to. the leadership of a studio to create an environment where people want to stay and not set up artificial barriers uh, for them not to leave because that means that create you know you will have less creativity in your company people are stuck there they don't want to be there but they don't have anything else to do they're just showing up for the paycheck and that's no good so if you still want to leave to build your studio, Hans, and you're looking for these co-founders. I do talk about this a lot in my book, The Long-Term Game, How to Build a Video Games Company, which is available on Amazon. Uh, The one point I make there is that you want to be quite active in your local game development community to get to know people. not necessarily poach them or solicit them yet, but to find like-minded people at meetups and game jams who are interested in, in what's going on with startups and maybe becoming an entrepreneur one day. Also reaching out to people all over the globe around the industry. I think our industry is becoming better networked that everybody's talking to each other all over the place over different kind of discords, slack channels, whatnot. So get involved in those as well and ask around if there's people who are interested in doing a startup. And you can also do a lot of stuff uh, as like becoming a more of a person online. If if you're afraid about talking about becoming an entrepreneur, that is another case. Maybe you don't want to talk with your own name, name, maybe you want to write under uh, a pseudonym or something like that. Uh, you start a podcast, you start writing a newsletter about the things you're excited about, and eventually you'll start gaining an audience and you'll find like-minded people and your network will grow, and then you will find more co-founder candidates. So let's take one more final question here this one comes from tour who asks what steps if any should a game company take to protect a novel game idea from being exposed and duplicated by others at soft launching or at any other stages and if this should not be a concern can you elaborate why? Thanks for sending over this awesome question, Zur. I'm happy to answer this one. So early in my career, I was asking everybody to sign these non-disclosure agreements before I was willing to show my idea uh, or a prototype or a game in development to anybody. I was a lot, lot more scared, and I think the whole industry was also keeping things more secretive for a long period of time. Uh, I know that a lot of folks still do this, but often I I don't think it's that that's much worth it because you want people's opinions and feedback on your game as soon as possible. And you're you're kind of like making it more frictionless for them to consider yourself as somebody who's showing things And for them to be open and giving you feedback as well. So when my first startup transitioned to Facebook Canvas Games in 2009, I would start having lots of people come to the office and play our games, uh, which were in development. And then I'd look at these people playing the games and hearing them saying things about the game. and, And then I would collect all that feedback and those learnings and take them and incorporate them into the game uh, with our team. So this playtesting was immensely valuable for the success of our games. And it has continued to be one of the best ways to create successful games, to have a lot of playtesting. So without the openness of letting people try the games, like if you are always asking an NDA, I, I think like, You might end up launching a product where nothing is really working because you've been so secretive and keeping it to yourself and not not showing it out and getting feedback. So that's one thing, keeping your game secret and protecting it with NDA agreements. Um, Of course, you can ask people to test your prototype once they've signed an NDA. It's not pleasant. But if they're your friends, they most likely will do it. So we have an NDA template on the Elite Game Developers website under the template section, so you can get it from there. So other things to protect your novel game ideas. So you can, of course, patent your game mechanics. But I've seen people try this process of patenting game mechanics and it's always so arduous. And it will cost you in a lot of fees and time spent on paperwork. Uh, I've, I, yeah, because I've seen a few startups go through this process where they are trying to patent these things. And the problem is that you need to be sure that this is a novel discovery that you have in your hands that others haven't patented and or are, haven't been attempting to patent yet. Uh, So protecting game mechanics with patents, I would say it's not for everyone. If you have a lot of capital and you have person hours to spend on patenting your mechanics, by all means, go for it. But I think like personally, things are moving so fast in gaming as we can see from hyper casual. So developers are... Uh, building a game in a week or two and then soft launching it. And often they have novel mechanics incorporated. But when you would start this kind of patenting process, some quick competitor would have already cloned your novel idea and uh, the patenting process would most likely fail in those instances. So as an investor, I don't want... Any entrepreneur spending time on patenting these games, that's that's sort of like where I I would want them to least spend their time, especially in these early stages where you're still growing the company from a small studio. Of course, if if you know, you should be cautious about the existing patents out there and watch out for possible lawsuits down the line, because there are mechanics that have been patented by bigger corporations so that's a another side how you could look at this uh, like whole situation out there there have been cases where some game studios recently have been sued because they have incorporated mechanics that have been patented by a certain company around like on the other side of the world Uh, so it is fairly tricky. So to summarize, I'm not too worried about protecting your game ideas. I'd rather you focus on launching your game as soon as possible and get it out there. So if it if it is successful, there will always be clones of some sort who are able to circumnavigate your protections, your patents, whatnot. So it, it is it is impossible to protect it but rather just you know openly show it around get feedback soft launch as early as possible keep moving don't get stuck thinking about how to protect your your precious idea so thank you everybody this was this was the the questions for for this episode so if you have more questions please do send them uh, to to the questionnaire that we have So you can find the link by going to EliteGameDevelopers.com slash askmeanything typed together without any spaces. So great. Uh, I wish everybody here uh, a pleasant week and I hope to to see you soon again. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.